Hello, and welcome to the latest DSC Beechcross Lawcast. My name is Emma Fuller, and I'm Head of Motor and Casualty Market Strategy for the Claim Solutions Group of DAC Beechcroft. In this series, Helen Mason, Head of Vehicle Hire and Damage at DAC Beechcroft, is joined by a number of colleagues to discuss the latest hot topics from our recent Credit Hire Annual Conference. Welcome to our DAC Beechcroft Credit Hire podcast following our recent annual conference. Um, I'm Helen Mason, Head of Credit Hire, and today I'm joined by Kelly Sutherland, Associate and Credit Hire Lead for Scotland, and Michael McLaren, Associate and Credit Hire Lead for Northern Ireland. We've had two editions already, and this is our third and final edition, covering the latest hot topics. So, Kelly, what's going on north of the border that we discussed at our conference? Hi, Helen. Thanks for having us along today. Um, Well, I suppose the biggest issue that was highlighted at um, our annual conference was um, quarks, which um, is now in Scotland and now that we actually have some case law on it as well. Um, So quarks came into effect in Scotland in June of 2021 and applied to all cases that were raised from the end of June that year that contained um, an element of personal injury. So what is key to know is that even though Quarks was brought into place in Scotland, no fundamental dishonesty has been brought into effect. So whilst you as a defender might be successful in having um, Quarks disapplied, what you wouldn't be successful in is having a finding of fundamental dishonesty obtained against a pursuer regardless of the circumstances of the accident or the evidence. Okay, so I guess very different then to the the position we find ourselves in in England and Wales. So what are the exceptions to when a defender can move for quarks to be disapplied? Yeah, so initially when quarks was brought into effect, um, there was only three exceptions to where a defender could move for um, quarks to be disapplied, which was naturally a bit challenging from a defender perspective. So the initial um, exceptions were when a pursuer makes a fraudulent representation or otherwise acts fraudulently in connection with the claim or the proceedings. Um, Secondly would be where a pursuer behaves in a manner which is manifestly unreasonable in connection with the claim or the resulting proceedings. Or lastly, um, otherwise conducts the proceedings in a manner um, in which the court would consider to be an abusive process. And the standard of proof for all three exceptions was based on the balance of probabilities. Hmm, So that seems like quite a high bar for a defender to overcome. Um, Have these been updated at all since the initial legislation was, was brought into place? Yeah. So it has been updated now and subject to the sheriff's discretion, there is um, more exceptions which will be taken into consideration um, from the court's perspective. Um, So they would be if a claimant or pursuer fails to obtain an award of damages which is equal to or greater than the sum offered by way of tender lodged in process or if there was an unreasonable delay by the claimant or the pursuer in accepting a tender 
and in the event that the claimant or pursuer abandons the action against the defender. And again, the test for that would be based on the balance of probabilities and would be subject to the sheriff's discretion. And just as a bit of an aside note, um, there is some caps that have been added in um, on the award of expenses that can be made against the pursuer in the event that Quokes is disapplied. So the um, the caps would be that the pursuer's liability to the expenses to the defender can't exceed the amount of expenses that the defender has incurred from the date that the tender was lodged. And the pursuer's liability for the expenses would be capped at 75% of the damages that were awarded to the pursuer. So, for example, if the defender lodged a tender in the sum of £5,000, they failed to beat it at proof and Quarks was disapplied, the expenses would automatically be capped at £3,750, regardless as to whether the expenses incurred by the defender were higher than that amount, they would be capped there. And lastly, um, where there's more than one defender, the court will apportion the expenses recoverable against the pursuer between each of the defenders if no agreement is capable of being reached between each of the defenders extrajudicially. Well, good to see that there are more exceptions now and hopefully that will mean more arguments being advanced. Is is that now the case? Yeah, that's exactly that's what we're seeing now. There's much more um arguments being advanced. Um, so the first few cases that um, Quark's arguments were, apply, um, were argued um, went against the defenders. However, we are starting to see that more and more arguments are being advanced and there is numerous cases that we're aware of that have came out recently that the defenders have been successful in having Quark's disapplied and an award of expenses against the pursuer. So from our perspective, really positive to see that judgments are coming out now in favour of uh, defenders. Moving on, what can our insurers uh, and insurer clients do to protect themselves from a, a Cox perspective? Yeah, um, I mean, that's a great question. And I suppose um, the, the the main thing that we would recommend is that um, taking a view on the main disputed issue is key. So from our perspective in Credit Hire, if that's the biggest disputed issue on the case and there's potentially a low-value whiplash claim in the background, then it's likely to be best for insurers to try to get some sort of offer put forward on the personal injury aspect and ideally have that settled pre-litigation. And then that ensures if there is any fraud or credibility concerns, then quokes won't even be an issue when it comes to litigation because there's no personal injury aspect. But we appreciate that that isn't always possible to do that um, pre-litigation. So then it's really key to utilise your panel, utilise panel solicitors early in relation to any investigations that are required, any reports or um intel that are required to ensure that you're in the best possible position when the case litigates. 
and then lastly would be tender and tender early. Um, so tendering is the Scottish equivalent to Part 36 offers and only come into effect once the case has been litigated. Um, so tendering and being very specific with the heads of claim that you're agreeing within your tender rather than tendering on a global basis is even more critical now given that late acceptance or failing to meet a tender at proof are two of the key exceptions as to when a defender can move for clocks to be disapplied. Okay thanks Kelly so I think that's Scotland addressed um, but what Northern Ireland issues did we address at the conference? Hi Helen during the Northern Ireland section of the conference, we discussed the impact of the new pre-action protocol for all county court actions involving credit hire claims and also some case law developments. I guess the next question then is, is what is the latest with the new protocol for Northern Ireland? The new protocol came into effect on the 6th of February 2023. The protocol represents a significant change for Northern Ireland credit hire claims as unlike previous iterations, it sets out provisions which are aimed at improving the exchange of information and documentation specifically for credit hire and vehicle damage only claims. The aim of the change is to enable more claims to be settled fairly and at an earlier stage, which should be welcomed by insurers and plaintiff firms alike. I discussed the various changes in detail on our last credit hire workshop podcast in June. At the conference, I emphasised to clients the importance of updating their processes and correspondence to the requirements of the protocol. For example, paragraph 8 of the protocol sets out a detailed list of information which should be provided for clients to make an informed offer. It is therefore important for insurers to specifically direct the information requests to what has been set out in paragraph 8. The protocol is a detailed document and I encourage clients to get in touch if they want to discuss how best to update their pre-action processes to adapt to the changes. We have pre-action teams in our Northern Ireland office who have been dealing with claims under the new protocol since it came into effect, and our work processes were updated as soon as the protocol came into, into force, so we can offer some helpful insight on how best to adapt to the changes that have been made. The protocol is ultimately aimed at enabling the parties to have sufficient information where appropriate to settle claims without litigation, so there's potentially a lot to be gained from it, but it is key to have a tailored approach to achieve the best outcomes. So that's the protocol covered, but what about a case law update um, in Northern Ireland? Yes, yeah, so at the conference I covered two recent cases which dealt with intervention and the failure to have a valid MOT at the time of an accident. Firstly, in terms of intervention, the issue was recently considered by the High Court in Belfast in the case of Thomas Smith v Marker study from August 22. The case was an appeal from the County Court. The background will be familiar to anyone who operates in the credit hire sphere. The daily credit hire rate charged for the hire vehicle is around £200. The hire agreement was entered into on the 21st of January 2019. On the same date, an intervention letter was sent offering a vehicle a lower cost of around £40 per day. The county court considered that the plaintiff had not acted reasonably and had failed to mitigate his loss in not accepting the offer set out in the defendant's intervention letter. The higher claim was therefore reduced accordingly. On appeal to the High Court, the judge referred to a number of relevant decisions, including Copley v Long, but also importantly a case of local origin, the Northern Ireland High Court decision of McKibben v UK General Insurance from 2021. The McKibben v UK General Insurance case made it clear that the CHO was an agent of the plaintiff. 
The McKibben case also determined that other parties, such as the plaintiff's motor assessor and solicitor, are sub-agents of the plaintiff. A piece of evidence given by the plaintiff on this issue that proved crucial was that on receipt of the intervention letter, he took it to the CHO and the gist of what they told him was to pay no heed to the letter. The judge, in setting out his determination, was keen to stress that each case is judged on its own facts. In terms of the intervention letter in this case, after quite a lot of debate, it was found to be a valid offer. However, the plaintiff in this particular case had not acted unreasonably in not accepting the intervention offer. This was in part based on the potential personal liability for other associated costs, such as for repair charges, which had already been incurred that the plaintiff could have been exposed to if he had cancelled the credit hire agreement at that time. However, the judge instead found that the advice given by the CHO to pay no heed to the intervention letter was unreasonable and reduced the hire claim by 20%. This was based on referring to the case of McKibben v UK General Insurance, which determined that a plaintiff cannot avoid adverse consequences flowing from wrong advice given by one of their agents. Thanks, Michael. So I guess what are the key takeaways from this case? From a client perspective, it highlights the other factors to consider when scrutinising a claim, which is really quite specific to Northern Ireland. The Smith case is one of the first examples of the application of McKibben to a key issue such as intervention. In essence, when intervention is an issue, it is important to not only consider the steps taken by the plaintiff, but also their agents such as the CHO, solicitor and motor assessor. It will be really interesting to see how the McKibben judgment continues to impact on key issues to consider in Northern Ireland credit hire claims going forward. And we'll, of course, keep our clients updated. Um, so that, I guess, is the case law in relation to intervention. But but where are we um, in Northern Ireland on the issue of, of having a valid MOT? It's not at the conference. We discussed the recent England Wales Court of Appeal case of Ali v HSF Logistics from September 2023. In the Ali case, a claimant who had no MOT at the time of the accident and produced no evidence that he intended to obtain one could not recover the cost of the hire claim. I highlighted at the conference that while this is the first authority I was aware of in England Wales on the issue, in Northern Ireland our High Court following appeal from the County Court in the case of Morgan v Bryson Recycling from 2018 also dismissed a hire claim on, on a similar basis. In the Morgan case the facts were quite similar and that the plaintiff had no valid MOT at the time of the accident, and there was no evidence to support that he had any intention of obtaining one. So does this now mean that Northern Ireland is firmly aligned with England and Wales on this issue? Not quite, Helen. As is our nature in Northern Ireland, we tend to like to do things a bit differently. I highlighted at the conference that while the factual background and end outcomes of the two cases were similar, the factors to consider when faced with considering the impact of an invalid MOT on a higher claim are different in Northern Ireland. The failure to have an MOT at the time of an accident and whether that is a bar to the credit hire claim can often turn on what actions were taken by the plaintiff to obtain an MOT test and when. In Ali and Morgan, the individuals involved have provided no evidence that they intended to arrange an MOT. In terms of arranging MOT testing, there are key differences between the two jurisdictions. In England and Wales, MOT tests are arranged via the private sector through individual garages. In Northern Ireland, MOT tests are delivered by the public sector, with all testing centres run solely by a local government agency, the Driver and Vehicle Agency, or DVA as they are commonly referred to. The DVA in recent times have been impacted by delays with test appointments. Two factors came together around the same time to create this. 
Firstly, in January 2020, testing was suspended due to safety concerns with equipment. And then shortly after this, the emergence of COVID-19 a few months later caused further testing delays. This created a backlog with testing, which meant a significant portion of drivers could not obtain an MOT test before the expiration of their current certificate. Testing resumed fully in July 2021, and the system is recovering, but we are still seeing delays in a number of centres. From a client perspective, when no MOT has been obtained, it is important to objectively consider the reasons given by the plaintiff. If a plaintiff does seek to explain the issue due to testing delays, it is important to then consider if the vehicle is roadworthy and whether the plaintiff had a forthcoming MOT test date booked when considering the reasonableness of their conduct. The Police Service of Northern Ireland will in general consider these same issues when assessing whether or not any offence has been committed when using a vehicle without a current MOT certificate. If there is no evidence that any test was booked, then arguably it is not reasonable to rely on a testing delay with the MOT as a basis to sustain the credit hire claim. Ultimately, what this issue highlights is that clients should always apply a jurisdictional lens to credit hire claims in Northern Ireland. Thanks, Michael, for the insight into Northern Ireland, both in terms of, of the protocol, um, but also the two key areas that you've addressed in relation to case law. Um, as a practitioner in England and Wales, I always really enjoy hearing about other jurisdictions, especially when it's a subject matter so, so close to my heart. So a, a huge thank you to Kelly and to Michael. Um, and I hope that you, our audience, have really enjoyed our three-part mini-series looking at the latest hot topics in the realm of credit hire. I'll be back with the team next year, so we will see you in 2024.